So the piece systems think before systematically thinking is going to be talking about how if we work hard with the wrong tool, we won't get much done. Um, the idea is if you, uh, if you have a nail and you don't have a hammer and instead you try to use a wrench on it, you, you might get the nail in, but you're probably not going to do that good of a job. And a similar idea, I think, applies to thinking in general and how, it, and how it's not simply that thinking involves focusing on the right data or the right material. Um, the way we think about something can be just as important as how hard we think about something or what we think about. And the idea is that all um, ideas are understood and giving meaning within certain structures. Uh, when we read a novel, we read it with a different structure or lens, whatever metaphor you want to use there, uh, a different lens than we would if we're trying to understand, say, the um, chemistry composition of the novel that we're reading. Um, if we're trying to understand how gravity works, we can go to poetry to understand gravity within metaphoric terms, or we can go to science to understand gravity in scientific terms. And it's not that either of those is wrong, but it depends on the circumstance and what your goals are, and that's going to have a big impact of what structure you use, what lens you use, by which to learn about something. And I'm afraid that very often we don't think much about the structures through which we think things. Um, often we just kind of randomly move between different modes of thinking or you know singular social scripts because we'll get into that of how to take on the world and we never even realize we're in a script or even using a lens uh, we think that the way we see things or the ways we live is just self-evident the way that everyone is doing it we don't even realize we're in a structure um so you know this piece also is kind of inspired by a lot we hear about mental models which I think is a fantastic subject, and I, and I think everyone should look it up. You know, ideas of, um, say, the mental model of falsification, where you, and this I think also gets at the point, where, which is the idea that verification is ultimately impossible and that science is based on falsification. We don't so much prove things. We don't so much prove gravity, for example. Instead, we try to falsify what we think gravity is, and if we don't ever falsify it, then we have reason to think that gravity is, in fact, the way we think it is. And therefore, to hold that um, theory uh, as possibly true, even though ultimately it might not be entirely true or it might not be ultimately true. Falsification gives us reason to believe things even if we can't verify. But let's say we didn't know about falsification, that lens through which, um, through which we think. Well, then we'd go around our life trying to verify everything and we'd work really, really hard and think really, really hard about stuff to verify it and we wouldn't get anywhere. And this can be the consequence of using the wrong lens or system through which to think. You end up wasting a whole lot of time or coming up with bad results. And I think falsification as opposed to verification is just a great example of that. Or, you know, take something like the um, Chesterton fence idea, which, you know, G.K. Chesterton talked about how if you come upon a fence in the woods and you don't know why it's there, a lot of people think that's reason to get rid of it. But his point is like, no, no, if you don't know why it's there, that's reason not to get rid of it. And he was sort of fighting against the uh, assumption of progress or the assumption that if we can't quickly identify or identify at all why something is there, that therefore we have reason to get rid of it. And he's fighting against that. Well, that's kind of a, a lens through which we can view phenomenon we don't completely understand. We can say, oh, well, let me take the Chesterton fence into account here. And therefore, we may um, save ourselves from tearing down a fence that's uh, keeping a bull pent up that we don't know about, per se. And, and on and on. There's, there's a lot of really good lists on mental models, and, and I highly suggest um, looking them up. 
Uh, In addition to this line of thought, uh, the the, the work kind of talks about system thinkers and systems thinkers, you know, people who think according to a single system and try to take on all the phenomena of life, and then people who think according to different systems and and moving um, between the different lenses by which we can think of the world. The, the, the problem is that if you only use, if you're a system thinker, then you don't even think you're a system thinker. You probably just think you're a thinker because it's only in the act of moving between systems that even a system becomes visible to us. Until then, it's kind of like um, Heidegger's doorknob. And uh, this is the idea here that often we use a doorknob and don't even look at it, don't even think about it. We don't think about the doorknob unless it's broken or it's out of the context of use. And so likewise, uh, a system lends it. The fact that we even use mental models or systems or lenses doesn't even really occur to us unless we move between different lenses. And this being the case, if we don't actively learn to systems think, not just systematically think, then we're going to be very susceptible to um, falling within a cultural script, to following within an intellectual box, and trying to solve all our problems through it without even realizing that's occurring to us. Um, We're going to assume maybe that the way our society does things is the way to do things, because that's the only um, script or lens or system that we've ever known. And so there's a real value in, in understanding the, that we, um, well, we, if we're not systems thinkers, we, we don't even realize we're system thinkers. Uh, so there's a lot of value in, in learning the reality of systems. Dearest Mr. Garner, I was reading your latest um, post about systems and systematic thinking, and it just sparked a couple ideas, and some of them I've had before, and then there are some new ones today as well, but thinking about this toolkit mentality, and the first thought that really struck me was you have to decouple your identity from the system or the tool. You know, the one that I thought of before is something like minimalism or stoicism. You can be a stoic or you can be a minimalist or you can appreciate and use their principles and ideas and not necessarily have to identify as either one of those, but you see the value in what they bring for certain situations but you're not caught up in being, your life is not consumed in being this kind of person or this kind of character where everything you do <clears throat> would be filtered through that lens, so to speak. You know, and the other big thought that hit me too, and just going with the whole toolkit mentality, is how it's easier to be a hammer than to be a master craftsman who has to know how to use all the tools in the toolkit. I think it's another, and I think you talked about just acting out of simplicity or that we naturally take the easier path and that the easier path is just to work on one mode of thinking or work on one tool, learning it instead of seeing that there's 
a vast array of tools and how to best use them all and modulate between them as situations arise. <clears throat> because there's not one, I don't think there's one perfect mode of thinking. You know, it's something I've tried to come up with too is a, calling it a unified unified personality theory and trying to come up with some way to put everything together to make it all make sense and so far I haven't gotten there because I think it's too complex to focus on one thing and where you really need again to be able to jump back and forth between different tools and different systems I am intrigued by the idea of things becoming invisible as the more you use your environment the more invisible things become and you don't notice them possibly because of the autonomy that occurs but you know any sort of expansion on that idea would be I'd be interested to to hear about it you know trying to think further and deeper into this idea you know in, in the beginning you talk about if we're taught to be really good at something, then all situations will look, you know, we'll, we'll look to that lens to see all situations in that way and how to break through that. You know, what sort of methods would even be a start? Because if you don't know what you don't know, and so, you know, it's, stumbling across an idea like this enough for some people to begin to change that or you know if you reach some point of failure or some point of frustration in life does that cause you to begin seeking other things and then you happen to stumble upon it you know what sort of are there very practical things that people can do that would move them towards expanding their toolbox so to speak i don't know it's an interesting interesting concept and i felt inspired after reading your article on it to discuss this further Well, Mr. Bartley, I always greatly appreciate you looking over my work, and I think you're exactly right. We can think of Stoicism, Aristotle, Plato, pragmatism as kind of different pairs of glasses we can take on and put on and see if we can find a pair which our sight is most focused and we're able to see more 2020. I think that's a good way to look at it uh, because, well, because otherwise what we're going to do is just say, oh, well, I like Aristotle, therefore that's the only pair of glasses I need. And we're going to miss out on some of the thinking. Because all of these different thinkers, if we're just talking philosophers right now, have different emphases, different focuses, different concerns. And some of them are going to help us understand one thing better than another. So it is important to um, move between the two, move between the different thinkers and try on the different lenses. I think it also, though, suggests the importance of a common life, as we were talking, talking about in our last discussion, you know, against which to test these different lenses and ideas in order to figure out which one works best in which different circumstances. Because generally, uh, each one of these thinkers is kind of internally consistent relative to themselves. And so you will have reason to think that the system is true relative to itself. 
so you have to test it against uh, the real world, against something outside of the system to determine which is best. So I think this actually gets back into the need of the um, intellectual or the thinker to be engaged in a common practical life as opposed to locked away in an ivory tower, just kind of like we talked about last time. Yeah, and you know, I think we can also kind of point out the truth of the idea of needing different uh, scopes, different systems, by just like if you had an apple in front of you or maybe a chair, or let's just, you know, a laptop, but let's take an apple. You know, we can describe it in terms of the shape. We can describe it in terms of what it makes us think about, our memories of apples. Maybe our mom made a great apple pie. We can think of it as a, as a science. We can think of it as a, um, a literary subject. We can think about it as something we can cut down, as a decoration, and so on and so forth. Just in the object of an apple, there is count. It's the the apple is an intersection of countless different dimensions and possibilities, and as I think about one of them, I'm not really going to be able to think about another of those dimensions very well. Say, if I'm trying to think about um, the uh, the the uh, sentimental meaning of the apple, I can't really do that very well and simultaneously think about the science of the apple. Uh, I have to move between those different modes of thought one at a time. Uh, And so we can actually just kind of see in a given object, which tends to be an intersection of all these different dimensions, the need for different lenses. And if we just think about that on a macro scale, um, if we're thinking about society at large or the economy, you know, we need to be able to think about it through the lens of economics. We need to think about it through the lens of politics, the um, the lens maybe of the Greek tragedy, as Martha Noonsperm talks about, which is a trade-off of competing goods. You know, so because if an apple is a intersection between all these different dimensions, well, then certainly even bigger systems and more dynamic and complex systems are going to be um, even greater meeting grounds between different um, different lenses. I'm glad that you like the idea of the invisible. I think that's really important. There's something kind of built into the brain itself that makes, um, to make things invisible. Like right now when I'm looking at my laptop, it's as if everything else in the room is not there. It is there. It's kind of invisible in its visibility. But in a sense, because I don't focus on it, it's like it's it's not there. Um, But then at the same time, what's kind of interesting, you know, if I'm too focused on something, uh, then I can miss the entire context it's in or the entire world it's in. Uh, and also, if I use something so often that I forget about it, like the doorknob example, then it becomes invisible too. So it's interesting. There, are, it, would, it would take a whole other discussion, but there's all these different kinds of invisibilities. There's the invisibility as a result of focus. There's the invisibility as a result of use. Um, there's an invisibility as a result of being in the background, like all these different kinds of invisibilities. And one of the tricks, I think, to thinking life and living well is to be aware of this phenomenon of um, this uh, event of invisibility because we, we can't get rid of it, but we also need to be aware of it going on. I think also that really good question you asked at the end is the idea of knowing about systems enough to make people see systems. kind of reminds me almost, uh, I guess, of Flannery O'Connor and some of her short stories on the idea that people don't wake up from their sin until, uh, until they get uh, you know, a bull to uh, run them over. They, like, grace has to kind of come into their life violently and kind of wake them up. I do think that can be uh, that sort of wake up 
can be something that helps people see systems. You know, if someone we, we, that we mentioned, uh, the paper mentioned sort of the outcast. I mean, if someone is outcast, let's say Dante is exiled in their society, then you begin to see the system uh, in which Florence operates. And so likewise, when you have maybe outsiders or creators, they might be better positioned because of rejection to see the society. And that's kind of, there's something Flannery O'Connor about that. Um, but I think if we understand, I think empathy can help. There's a paper we did called On Critical Thinking about how empathy Empathy is um, not merely putting your shoes in another person's shoes, but your feet in another person's shoes. And when you do that, you try to enter into the system, an interpretive and hermeneutical lens by which they understand the world. And so empathy can help us realize that there are systems and to practice it. But there is a there is a quandary here because you know if you're if you're in a system and you've been successful and you've done well thanks to that system, then it becomes uh, the, the 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 better you do because of the system, the more um, it, it's hard to realize that it is a system. And and certainly we don't want to create the impressions that systems are bad uh, because we have to live with systems. It's like people talk about bubbles. Um, well, it's impossible not to be in a bubble, and that fact alone is not inherently bad. It, it depends on what the consequences are, or if we become self-righteous, or we're not able to understand other people are in bubbles. So I think it goes with lenses and systems. Um, so we do need to, I mean, we need to be aware of this problem so that we avoid pride, self-righteousness, and all the tribalism that seems to define um, pluralism. I, so I do think empathy can help. I think, um, I think catastrophe can help people pe- people realize these things and I, and I do think hearing this idea uh, can help people realize it as well well mr. Garner I must say that you leave me in a hallway full of doors doors of possibilities because I could take so many different tracks of your ideas and go in a hundred different directions. But the one thought that really just struck me today is thinking about the Apple problem. And what occurred to me is the more times you interpret something, the more ways you interpret something, if you look at it from a different lens of say math, that problem becomes a fractional problem. You know, the more ways you look at it, the either the smaller the fraction gets or the smaller the number gets because the denominator keeps getting bigger with more possibilities. And I'm curious if that leads to some sort of relativism when you look at something, you know, with this infinitely many possibilities, or if you do look at it as a fraction, that your one truth has less meaning. And so you could either and I don't know for sure, I haven't studied it enough to know, but if you could lead to relativism in one direction or nihilism in the other because your one fractional truth becomes closer and closer to zero. I don't know, it's just something that that hit me this morning and I couldn't shake it, so I had to speak that part out now. Also reflecting on the idea of different lenses to see the world... And related to the Apple problem, too, about the fractionalization of, well, not truth, but the approaching approaching infinitely many ideas or interpretations is that instead of interchanging lenses with different systems or different viewpoints, as individuals, I like to think that we build our own 
you can build your own lens, but it's a almost a compound lens. You know, the more you take on, the more you observe and think, the more complex your compound lens becomes, and the more, not necessarily viewpoints you can see at the same time, but the way your viewpoint is shifted based on the things you learn and the things you think about shift and morph that compound lens and you add to it and you can remove from it i guess it's although it's hard to eliminate thoughts from your mind but that we are that we are so complex as humans that we can take on many different sources of information many different types of information and use them and i do think it builds our viewpoint which again like you said stepping into somebody else's shoes that becomes a very difficult problem because you don't know everything some someone's been through, everything they've learned, every movie that's impacted them, every song, every beautiful sunrise or sunset that just morphs them and changes them in a slight, slight way. You you can't know those things about you can't know everything about someone like that or to that level to really see through their compound lens. I don't know, it's a difficult problem, but I I do think we build we're good at building, well, maybe we're not good at it, but we do build the way that we see the world through all the ways that we've learned about seeing the world. And thinking about what would shake somebody out of, not even shake somebody out of, but just make them realize that there are different systems of thinking and that they are in a particular one. I've had this idea that things, the reason people would change is either something happens very quickly and there's enough pain that's caused or whether it's physical or mental or emotional pain or it's a long enough buildup where the cumulative effect creates the same result. Easy example is if your health declines over a certain number of years and something happens, is that enough to shake you out of that? Whereas if you know you have an acute incident or an acute accident... Does that shake you out faster than years of small enough but not terrible bad habits? It's one of those, at what level does it take to create change or even awareness? I really like what you said about making sure that in talking about a system or systems that it's not to throw out all systems or the idea of systems. Because I do think they're useful. You know, it's something that is, it's not good or bad, it's indifferent or it's it exists so you have to learn to deal with it not even learn to deal with it but learn to use them appropriately you know one other related thought i've had to that is with emotions because we wouldn't have them if they weren't necessary for certain situations you know some seem good and some seem bad but i think they all have uses in the right amounts and applied the right way you can say happiness is a great emotion then but fear is a bad emotion but really fear is meant to keep you alive in certain situations it's not good to live with fear all the time and i think conversely you know you shouldn't live with happiness all the time but there are reasons to use them all and so yeah they're not necessarily good or bad it's just in what quantity and when's the right application of them and so i think the same thing can apply to systems there's not necessarily a good or bad one but in what application is it valid?
can you find the right use or the right use case for that system? And you're right, I would like to have that invisibility discussion at some point too. And I know I mentioned awareness again, and I thought about that too, how to be more aware. And then also, is there a good level of awareness? Because I think there are reasons that our minds would want to hide things from us. You know, when I'm standing here at my desk, I don't need to feel the carpet underneath my feet all the time. And I don't need to feel the clothes on my body. And I don't need to notice the temperature in the room unless it's too far one way or the other. And you know, I don't need to know that my body is digesting food right now. There's all these things that our bodies and our minds keep hidden from us because it would be too much input. And there needs to be, you need to have a way to focus and focus your effort. And so, yeah, I think it is good to be aware, but again, at what point can you be too aware of things? And I think that's where habits come in and just tuning your environment, you know, because again, things we do often enough become automatic and that can be good or bad, just like seeing the systems we use can be good or bad. And I do like your idea or your statement about that if the more successful you are in a particular system, the harder it is to see other ones and maybe even see other ones as useful. Because I think there's a desire, either whether it's sunk cost or the time it would take to explore other ones. And if there's not going to be the same value gained, is it worth it kind of thinking? Which brings up an interesting idea too, with the whole being in one system. There's an interesting concept and I've heard it called before, it's called, it's from a video game where you can prestige, where you keep your title of what you've done, but you go back to square one. And you see a lot of CEOs and other executives do that. They'll move to an industry that has nothing to do with whatever they initially were successful at, but using the same principles that they learned to be successful as a CEO in one area, then they can apply to another position in a completely different industry. And so it's a way to use existing skills, but add more. And so I feel it's sort of related to that idea of being very successful in the system. And maybe they've figured out to use the system of being successful and then build new skills in a different arena. Might be a way to think about that one. And this just occurred to me, I should have thought of it when I was recording, but the idea of learning skills in one arena and applying them to another. There's a fantastic quote in the book Musashi. And he says, if you see the way broadly, you see it in all things. And whether or not that's bordering on universal truth and something that transcends systems, it'd be interesting to see if, if there is. But I just really like that quote. And I think it could be applicable to the discussion. Mr. Bartley, I always appreciate your responses. And, you know, you went right for the giant metaphysical problem right there when you talked about the idea of the seemingly fractal problem that happens with, the, with a thing when you start thinking about it along different dimensions. The trick is the recognition that every when we break the apple up, say, to think about it metaphorically, although our focus fractalizes 
splits up the apple. The apple in of itself is not split apart, that it is focus that fractalizes, not the thing itself. But there's also something very interesting. There's a paper I did called A is A, where I take on Aristotle's principle of identity, which I think is incomplete. Um, because you mentioned a moment ago that, uh, well, you mentioned the idea that when I think about the apple, I can break kind of its, you know, smaller and smaller parts, but then there's also an infinity to it. And there's a kind of equilibrium that strikes between the, those two that makes the apple actually stable, even if focus must fractionalize, even if to think about the apple, I must break it up into fractals that if I did not do, I couldn't think about the apple. But the paradox here is that that means I have to break apart the apple to fully understand it, of which means I never think about the apple in full. And so thought always has a kind of incompleteness to it. And if I think about the apple, say, what's an apple? Well, it's, you know, it's red. Okay, it's round. It's got this shape and leaves. Okay, well, it's made of atoms. And, you know, I can keep breaking it down. Eventually I get to this, you know, I'm dark, you know, it's uh, particles coming out of a void or something. But one of the mistakes is to think that the truest dimension of a thing is the parts that make it up, that parts are more real than a whole. And that's, I think, atomism is the name of that mistake. When really we also have to keep in mind that though the apple is made up of um, atoms, it could also be said that the atoms are part of an apple. And so those atoms would not be there if there was also not the whole. So though when I think about the apple, I have to, I almost necessarily have to go in the direction of the parts that make it up. Those parts never exist independent of the whole, and so it wouldn't make sense to say that the atoms are more real than the um, apple. They have to be equally will, uh, real. Um, and this is a dilemma of focus itself, because try to, f if you're, imagine you're holding an apple, try to think about the hand and the apple at the same time. You really can't do it. You can try to combine them and think together, but to think about the hand in of itself and the apple in of itself equally simultaneously, you cannot do it. Uh, th thought, uh, by definition, has to um, focus, has to, in a sense, reduce, uh, make, it, make it seem like, excuse me, the world is smaller than it actually is around you. And this gets into a distinction I talk about called on thinking and perceiving, uh, where thought has something reductionist to it. But it's important to recognize that though thought must fractalize to conceptualize, the thing that is being split apart in thought does not split apart in of itself. And thus, we don't have to go toward nihilism or relativism because the thing itself is not reduced. Um, <clears throat> but there is something also very interesting here, which means that thought is always kind of, um, thought is always incomplete. It never is fully grasping a thing, only parts of a thing. And then as it um, grasps that part, it then tries to focus on another part, remember the previous part, and then put them together like Legos, trying to come up with a full image. But there's something um, sort of jugular, you're like juggling pieces, something very difficult about that process. And even if you put all the pieces together correctly, since you can never focus on the whole equally as each of the parts independently, you can never think fully about the full object that you put together. And so thought always is incomplete, which means one, we should be humble. And two, what that also means is that ra rather than nihilism, we actually should have an understanding that the world is always bigger than what we can think about. And it almost should send us, I think it should send us in a more transcendent direction, more, more aesthetic vision, a beautific vision to use that Christian language. Because if thought can only ever see a small fragment or a small part or an incomplete framing of the world, um, then, the, then the world is always bigger than thought. 
uh, and that there's always something to rise up to. So for me, the recognition that thinking is incomplete is inspiring. There's something inspiring about it, and it's linked up with a vision of beauty that we try to talk about in the paper on beauty. I think that that also gets to what you're saying about you can't know everything about a person. You can't ever put yourself completely in their uh, in their brain. Well, you can't even completely know an apple. You you know you can't even know a person. It's just that the experience of a person makes this um, dilemma that I'm describing very vivid and very clear. And also, in a sense, you can't ever fully know yourself because you can only know parts of yourself and then try to put them together. And we, and, and we have to live with the tension of being a thing that we can only know as parts that we then try to put together, but then whatever we put together, we cannot think of in its entirety simultaneously. And so there's a, there's a kind of mystery to people. There's a mystery to ourselves and a mystery to the world. And what I mean by a mystery is not something we can't know anything about, but something of which the more we know about, the more we find there's more to know. And I find that a very beautiful and inspiring vision and also means that we should always be learning. There's always something to learn. And I think the, the reductionist uh, view uh, or any view that leads us toward nihilism then makes learning kind of a waste of time, and it doesn't inspire us to always le- learn. So I, I think that sort of vision of the incompleteness of thought before the completeness of things is inspiring, and, and it's an, an aesthetically compelling vision, um, which can be elaborated. Also, I think also what you're talking about at Compoundlands, I, I think that's that's exactly right. Um, I think of it kind of as almost, uh, I guess it's a violent image, but a Swiss Army knife that you can whip out, you know, the screwdriver or the knife or the, uh, the, the uh, popcorn for a wine bottle or something, whatever that's called, corkscrew, um, and put, put away the ones you want or have multiple out at the same time based on what the thing is. Uh, and, and so I think that's how lenses are. As you, as you learn lenses, you can move them in, move them out, but you keep them all together in a compound unit of the Swiss Army's knife, and you can combine, and then you can use multiple lenses at the same time to get new ideas. Uh, so you can do both there. You can, sing, you can use them singularly, or you can use them compoundly, and I think that's very important. I think you're correct also talking about health, how um, it's often this um, event, this sort of um, wakes you, shakes you awake event, that makes people um, realize they're in a system and to think differently and become systems thinker versus systems thinker. The problem is most of us are the frog in the gradually warming up pot that we don't realize our health is going bad. We don't realize we're becoming uh, closed-minded. It happens very, very slowly. And all of that, and if we're in a pot like that, it's invisible. We, It's invisible to us. We don't know what's happening. So we have to get an ability to... Notice if we're in a pot where the water is uh, warming gradually, even if we can't see it or we don't have reason to think we're in it. And yet we have to learn to do that without being paranoid. So it's almost like a weekly check as opposed to a daily check. You know, that could get into the pragmatism of what that looks like. Uh, On the topic of invisibility, which um, is always fascinating to me, I completely agree that there are mechanisms of invisibility that are necessary. We can't think about our digestive tract all the time, uh, and yet we need it. And so... Invisibility plays a very practical role because we could, we literally can't think of everything or we'd go nuts. At the same time, uh, these mechanisms, um, this natural need for invisibility tends to overreach and it tends to make things invisible that we, um, that we don't want to be invisible to us. Um, maybe some of our core beliefs, uh, maybe some of our ideas about um, how careers should operate and so forth and so on, that the, the, the it, it seems to be the case that 
invisibility, which is necessary, also has a tendency to overreach. And so we have to be aware and checking ourselves to make sure it's not overreaching. Um, but, I, but that's very difficult and gets into the question of how uh, do we do that and what are the mechanisms of doing that and uh, the self-disciplines that might help. You know, Mr. Garner, after listening to your reply several times, I really like the idea that even though you try to break something up repeatedly, that it is still that thing. You know, with the apple problem, no matter how complex we try to make it, it is still an apple. And there's a beautiful simplicity in that, that no matter how complex our thinking gets and how complex our systems and how deep our knowledge goes, you know, talking about atomization, that the apple is still there and not that an apple is simple, but it's as a whole, the realness keeps it simple. And I hadn't heard the converse of that thought when you're saying that the atoms and the parts wouldn't exist without the apple. And there's almost something beautiful to that. I know when you know when you're talking about not knowing everything and knowing that the universe is bigger and bigger and you can only see a part you know is that is that where beauty does come from that no matter what you see there's always more and that there's beauty in the unknown of things and you're mentioning the problem about being able to focus on multiple things and how focus in itself you know, brings things to a smaller picture and divides. And I'm wondering if that's why, as humans, we're keen on putting things into stories and narratives. Because if you can't focus on your hand and the apple and the room you're in all at the same time, can you say, I am holding an apple in my kitchen? And that seems like a single thought to us, even though all the parts that go into it are vastly complex and that we can easily more easily understand the world if we put things into a narrative and how it relates to everything else there's an interesting i forget who did the study but talking about intelligence and if you went back say a hundred years and asked someone to explain how are a dog and a cat similar? Well, they'd say they're not. They're completely different animals. And they couldn't grasp the concept that a dog and cat are similar because they have two eyes and four legs and tails and they're both mammals. You know, those... It seems like as time has progressed, things have been more... Not broken down, but people are more trained to see things as their parts, whereas before, each thing was its own entity. A dog was a dog. It wasn't, you know, it couldn't relate to a cat because it's a dog. It's it's this kind of animal. It's not that kind of animal. It seemed like for a long time that we created stories to make things relate to other things better. We created those stories to give an apple a place 
Because what does an apple mean unless we have it to eat or if we have it to hold? You know, an apple just sitting out there somewhere doesn't mean anything to us unless it's we can relate it in some way. Yeah, and bringing things back a little bit to systems thinking and the topic of invisibility, one thing that struck me was how many people in any of the self-help industries talk about habits and their importance, which I, I do believe they are. And that's almost done correctly is a like a conscious invisibility or purposeful invisibility where you systematize things to build in invisibility so you don't have to think about those habits and those things in your life that would make it better or make it more fulfilling. Um, something as simple as meal prepping. You know, you take an hour to even just plan out what you're going to eat. That saves you from grabbing fast food or not knowing what you're going to make for dinner. You can plan that ahead of time. You can fill your cabinet with good things. And so when you reach in and you're not thinking about what's in there, at least you're grabbing something that's good. Other things, you know, if you're trying to not use social media as much, don't have the apps on your phone, make it, make it a conscious effort. If you're going to go down the route of using something, if you're trying to avoid using it, the more conscious and harder you make it, I think the less likely you are to do it. If the only access you had to it was say on your web browser and you had to log into your account, would you do that every 10 minutes where on your phone, you just hit the little app icon and there you go. You're in whatever social media app you want to be in. <clears throat> and so you're almost creating a barrier to entry on things that you want to do less where you're almost making that choice more visible and then making the choices invisible that you want to do more frequently. You know, if you're, say, trying to write more, well, if you leave a notebook out with a pencil on a blank page or a continuing of whatever thought you were on, I think that's easier to jump into that than <clears throat> if it was in a drawer somewhere. And so it's, you can create invisibility or visibility based on whatever direction you're trying to move. And again, you know, like you're talking about, if things are more successful or the more successful you are in a system, the more likely you are to hang on to that system. And so, yeah, I think having some sort of weekly check or monthly check to see how those systems are performing for you is a good thing. There's actually an interesting, I can't remember which author it was, but he has this idea of sharpen the saw, where once a month he'll spend an hour or two reflecting on things he did, things he wanted to do, and see how they line up. And so you could have, at whatever interval works for you, have a, a systems check. Mr. Bartlett, it's always wonderful to hear from you. And, and no, I think it's very important to realize that when we think about an apple, it does not cease to be an apple. And it sounds very mundane, but we spend so much time thinking 
And when we're asked the question, what is an apple? We go into thinking. But if, innate, but if thinking innately entails slicing up, then it seems to us that the apple becomes smaller and smaller and smaller until there is nothing there. And since that's what our thought did, we then, since we're kind of um, children of the Enlightenment, we associate um, what we think as being more true than what we perceive and experience. So if in our thinking we're able to reduce an apple into nothing, then we go, oh my gosh, therefore the apple is nothing. But the apple's still there. And we can do a little experiment. If we look at an apple or maybe this guitar on the wall, and I literally make myself not think, and this is really hard and kind of the practices that are discussed in Buddhism of like shutting off your brain. Like if you really just don't think. The object doesn't vanish. It's still there. And in fact, sometimes by like silencing the voice in your head or the thinking or the splitting and the, all the, the noise, you really see the object. You really see the apple. And it doesn't vanish. And you can reach out and touch it and feel it. And the problem is that we just have created a hierarchy between what I call thinking and perception. Perception being sensual intake, you know, sight, sound, taste, you know, the experience of an object in sensual terms is how I'll associate um, perceiving while well, thinking is the mental um, dissection and thinking and things like that. And we've just created a hierarchy after the Enlightenment where things um, are more real in terms of their thought than in terms of their perception. But this is not true. And in fact, the assumption that the thought is more real than the perceived has led us to all feeling like disembodied heads on sticks. And so we don't exercise and we just sit on our computers because, you know, we're, we're in our own self-created matrix or something plugged in. <laughs> so it's really important to work against that. And, and I really like this idea, and I think there's a lot of truth to it, on the problem of focus shrinking is one of the reasons we create stories. Um, because there is something about a story where you're trying to maintain all the dimensions of a person, their backstory, their emotional life, their, uh, their bravery, their action, like all these different dimensions that we're trying to put them all together. Um, obviously you can't do it simultaneously because you have to read sentences in order, but you're really trying to kind of hold it together to give a complete picture. And I think there is something about stories because stories are usually not just about a single layer. They're about many things are multifaceted that is trying to overcome the problem of, dare I say, thinking, of focus, because thinking and focus must shrink by definition. And therefore, sometimes stories can seem, you know, stories we try to think, what was the point of that? What was the meaning? We try to ask thinking questions or conceptual questions about story. And in order to answer that question, we almost have to leave the story behind and reduce it into premises. Um, when really the story must be understood on its own terms as a whole. I think Walker Percy had this idea when somebody asked him what was the meaning of moviegoer. He said, if I could tell you, I wouldn't have written the book. And what he meant by that is that the meaning of the book was inseparable from the whole of it. And I think there is something about stories that is trying to keep, uh, keep us connected with perception as opposed to thought might be the way to put it. And you see, I thought intelligence really is in many respects pattern finding. And so I'm not trying to say intelligence is bad. The, 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 it's much more difficult. We have to find a balance between thinking and perceiving. Um, you know, you mentioned the heart, the, uh, the dog and the cat. So people used to go, yeah, it's like, oh, they're, they're entirely different. And there's something about that where if you don't see patterns, it's harder for you to conceptualize the animals or to make an efficient society or to make new inventions. But at the same time, it's as if you maintain the aesthetic experience of the object because it is very, very, it maintains its one of oneness. And so there's this tension where if we associate think, thinking with intelligence and dare I say meaning, because you're translating it in objects into conceptual terms you can understand, there's a tension between 
um, the intellectual understanding of an object and the aesthetic experience of an object, the holistic experience of an object. There really is a sense in which thinking threatens understanding an object or a thing in its wholeness. It's like asking someone, why do you love your wife? You know, the, the question's almost obscene because you have to reduce something that can only be understood holistically into single sentences, and it's just not appropriate. In a sense, that's the problem we have with all of reality because every single object in the world, it's kind of obscene to reduce it to a premise. But if we're going to understand it and find patterns, we must. And so we have to figure out a way to find a balance between the intellectual and the aesthetic. And I think after the Enlightenment, we're really on the side of the intellectual and patterns. Don't get me wrong, that's made us really, really efficient. But I think we would certainly benefit from what you're describing as sort of conscious invisibility, sort of as opposed to all of the aesthetic side of the world becoming invisible to us and, I'm not, and us not realizing it. Instead, we sort of design our life and choose um, just to get through, to not always be taking in the oneness of oneness of everything, because if we did that, we couldn't function. So, you know, but, but in doing that, you don't lose the ability to stop and just see what's in front of you. You know, Heidegger put it as the sort of the question of being, the to be struck by being, the magnitude and the majesty of it. Um, it's really important to be able to be struck by being and to be able to turn off that conceptual part in order to have an aesthetic experience. Uh, I think that's very, I think also what you're getting at is conscious invisibility. That's exactly right. So, you know, there's that line where we make our tools and then our tools make us. Well, we we want to consciously choose what's invisible to us, our environment and our habits, um, as opposed to what is invisible to us just happen without us consciously realizing it, because then our environment will, will, will live through us more than we'll live in our environment. And I think habits is um should be consciously con constructed so you get a kind of dialectic between invisibility and invisibility because if everything was fully visible all the time you couldn't function you go crazy your brain couldn't you need categories and patterns in order to function but at the same time if everything is invisible then you're never going to be struck by being you're never going to um design your environment in a more construction constructive way and you're just going to live like a head on a stick <laughs> you know to go back to that um so and and so likewise um we want to consciously pick our systems and to consciously pick the system by which we approach something until we get to the point that it is a habit assuming it is a good system that we have chosen and then once we do so the system that we are operating and the problem of systems can become invisible to us and then what will be visible is the systemize systemizing systematically thinking within that system until we reach our goal and then even that can become inv invisible to us because now we have reached our goal and once you walk a road and get to the house you're trying to go inside you can go inside shut the door and just because you can no longer see the road does not mean you didn't use it well.